You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway Church. Good to see you this morning. Grateful you're with us. Uh, if uh, I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. And I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 14, if you have a Bible with you there. Romans 14 in our New Testament. We're continuing our study in this letter uh, to the Roman church. Uh, and I tell you, if, uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been taking the better part of the last year and a half to navigate through this beautiful letter that communicates to us of how God has saved us, who God is, his, his grace and his mercy in saving us through the, through the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. And now what we've been doing on the back end of this book, Paul's been walking through how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, how it transforms every aspect of our lives. And so we've seen how the gospel transforms us vertically in our relationship with God and our worship of him, horizontally uh, in relationship to this church that he has brought together and uh, the unity that we have through the blood of Christ. And then we've seen how the gospel transforms us and how we engage with the world around us, our uh, persecuting enemies, our non-believing neighbors, uh, even a civil government over us. All these areas we've looked at. And this week, as we dive into Romans chapter 14, we're going to see how the gospel transforms what I believe to be one of the most difficult areas in all of the Christian life. And that is how to relate to other Christians whom we disagree with. Uh, and not just disagree with on major primary issues that the scriptures are very clear about, but I'm talking about when we disagree with one another in those gray areas, areas of opinion and preference. We're not talking about um, uh, revealed issues in scripture, we're talking about non-revealed. Uh, we're not talking about moral issues in scripture, we're talking about the amoral issues of our day. We're not talking about um, specifically what's right or wrong, but what may be left or right, areas of conscience and conviction. Um, when Paul wrote this letter, he's dealing with first century believers, Jews and Gentiles, who have put their faith in Jesus and their blood-bought salvation has been purchased. They are one family now, brothers and sisters in Christ. But you can imagine the differences that were brought to the table. And I'm not just talking about, again, um, doctrinal differences. Those are sealed in the blood of Christ. I'm talking about issues of personal experience and tradition. This is how we did it growing up. Well, this is how we did it growing up. And them coming together over different perspectives and experiences on particular issues, even ordinances within the text that has nuance to it. And Paul is gonna write because one of the greatest area of friction oftentimes isn't the hostility of the persecuting non-believing world around us. Oftentimes, the greatest tension is within this room. And Paul's gonna speak to this issue. Now, here's the question I have. The issues of tension in the gray areas, is that just a first century problem or do we experience this 21 centuries later? Oh, I guarantee you, we got just as many issues today, don't we? Uh, when in a room this size, uh, and uh, as, as different as this room can be, are there issues of difference on perspectives of how we should do worship in the church? Hymns or Hillsong? Anybody want to cause a fight right now over this? Uh, are there issues of difference in this room when it comes to parenting? Uh, 
public school or private school? Um, are there issues of difference over how we should vote, Republican or Democrat? Oh, Lord, help us right now. Yes. Are there differences that we can have in, in viewing alcohol? The scriptures are clear, don't be drunk. But is there a difference even over whether you should even drink alcohol or not? Oh, there's going to be some perspectives in here, I can assure you. Uh, what about certain movies you'll watch that other people don't feel comfortable watching? What about... Um, Sunday school, or should we do small groups? Uh, what about the idea of which translation is better to use uh, of Bibles? English Standard Version, CSB, NASB, which one? Uh, communion every week? Really, Northway? Communion every week? Uh, what about if we just did that monthly or quarterly? Uh, what about, I don't know, vaccines, masks? That a big deal? Lord, help us. There are big deals all amongst us. I mean, we have... So many differences, and, and here's the crazy thing. I know those are issues. They are issues because let me tell you what fills up my inbox every week. I wish it were. Could you explain more about the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ as it pertains to my life and forgiveness? Can you explain more about the validity of the resurrection? I wish I was getting those emails. You know what I'm getting every day? I'm getting, can you tell Josh to stop wearing his hat when he leads worship? <laughs> you know who you are. Uh, can, can you, can you please, and I've had, these are not hypothetical. Uh, could you please tell people to stop bringing coffee into the worship center? This is a house of God. No, it's a gym. It's really, it's really a gym. I, I can, I can tell you that. Um, but I get those. Uh, I've shared with you this before, probably the most classic one I've received in all my vocational years of ministry was, uh, I want to know when the church is going to take a stance on breastfeeding. Uh, versus bottle feeding. Yeah, your reaction was mine. Thank you. I, I told when I shared that I was just out of seminary. I was fresh, young, doctrinally driven, ready to charge the gates of hell with significant doctrinal issues of our day, and I got that one, and I had no idea how to respond. I didn't even, wasn't even, didn't even have kids yet, and I looked into my glossary trying to find L for lactation. I didn't know where that was back here. These are real issues, and unfortunately, these are the issues that do not unite us, they divide us. And we'll spend more time dealing with the gray issues. And here's the irony, y'all. When it comes to gray issues, the world around us, the non-believing, non-Jesus-following world around us, they are notorious. They are notorious for taking black and white issues that the scriptures speak to and making them gray. But you know what the church is notorious for? We are notorious for taking gray issues and making them black and white. And we will divide and bite and devour one another over these issues. And the problem is we can't even decide which issues are gray because we're that passionate about it. But the truth is there are. There are a lot of gray issues. Every issue that I've mentioned so far is not an issue that the scriptures actually explicitly command nor prohibit. None of those issues that we talked about are commanded nor prohibited in Scripture. These are not issues of right or wrong here. These are issues of left or right. They're issues of personal conscience, personal conviction. They are important. They do matter, but they're going to require wisdom in how to navigate and love and charity in the areas which are gray. 
And what we're gonna see both this week and the subsequent weeks as we work our way through Romans 14 and 15 is that the only way we are gonna be able to navigate these lesser issues, which become hot opinion buttons for us, the only way we're gonna navigate and move forward as a church is by pursuing a gospel-motivated love for Jesus and for one another uh, that centers around the essentials of our faith and not the non-essentials. And uh, and I wanna show you in chapter 14 what I feel, honestly, is the most difficult passage in the entire Bible to apply. It's not the most difficult to understand. It's the most difficult to apply within the church. So follow along here, chapter 14, verse one. Notice the first thing that Paul says right out of the gate. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him in, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, first of all, notice the context here is someone who is, quote, weak in faith. What does that even mean? You're gonna have two people here. One is gonna be pitted as weak in faith. One will be pitted as strong in faith. What are we talking about here? First of all, weak in faith, what it does not mean. It does not mean somebody who is lesser in their faith than another, lesser in their worth or value or identity than another. They're not insignificant. They're not even disobedient. And this is important. We're not talking here in Romans 14 about legalism. We're not talking here about trying to earn the merit or the favor of God by the works that we do or we don't do. That's not what we're talking. That was the issue in the book of Galatians. And Paul will bring about a strong condemnation for the one who will try to seek the favor of God through their own works. But nobody's gonna get rebuked in this passage. Nobody's gonna get condemned in this passage. So we're not talking about a false gospel of works here. Um, what, we're, what we're talking about here, oh, someone who's weak in faith in context is someone who just hasn't fully yet grasped the depth of understanding of the grace and the freedom that they have been given from Jesus Christ in certain areas of life. That's what we're talking about here. Someone who rather has an ongoing conviction that by their abstaining from something, that the Bible hasn't explicitly prohibited them or commanded them to do, by abstaining from something, they'll actually have the opportunity to bring more glory to God by not doing it. And they have this conviction. But the result is, is that they tend to feel that everybody else should have the same conviction. Because I feel so strongly about this in this gray area, this opinion that the scripture doesn't explicitly command, everybody else should feel the same way. And so we can have the tendency from this perspective to dogmatize our convictions and make them universally binding upon everybody else and hold them in contempt and judgment because they don't, uh, they don't uh, abstain like we do. And so the irony is, is that person, do you think they would see them? How do you think they would see themselves in this text? Would they see themselves as weak in faith? No, the irony is they're actually gonna probably see themselves as strong in faith because they have this rock solid conviction that they shouldn't be doing this thing that you're doing. And, and so they're gonna view themselves as strong in faith, but Paul is gonna say the opposite. He's gonna say it's actually weak in faith because of a lack of understanding. Your faith isn't strengthened enough in maturity to understand the grace and the freedom that has actually been purchased for you in Jesus, that you can actually worship God in engaging in this thing rather than just abstaining. 
Now, on the flip side of that, there's a second person implicitly mentioned here. It's not the the weak in faith, it's the strong in faith. And the strong in faith from this context would be the one who has come to a discipled understanding that there are certain neutral areas of Scripture, certain neutral aspects of Levitical law that have now under the new covenant been lifted or been fulfilled, and that you now have the freedom where you don't have to abide by that anymore as unto worship to God. You can, you can and still worship God, but you can also uh, engage and still worship God in these gray areas. So Paul says to the one who has an understanding of grace and freedom, the one who feels the freedom to have a beer, not get drunk, but to have a beer, but somebody else thinks you shouldn't, to the one who, who understands the freedom he does have, your role is to welcome in the one who feels like they don't have that freedom. Your role, as we're gonna see later on in Romans 14, is to lay down your preference, your freedom, your license for the love of another. You're gonna take a higher road on this because notice what Paul calls the weaker in faith's understanding on this said issue. It's not an area of commanded doctrine that they're to hold to. It is quote unquote, an opinion. That's what this text is about, by the way, an opinion. Now we're gonna have an opinion of what we think an opinion is. So just know that there's gonna be another tension here, but this is what Paul is speaking to. So in verse two, Paul's gonna use two different examples of what were relevant in his day. Now I just shared some examples that we can fight over in our day. What were two common examples in Paul's day? Two common examples were holy foods and holy days. These were the big issues in the first century. Which foods can you eat and not eat and which days should you observe and not observe? And, and what's there in between. So verse two, Paul says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. In other words, the person in verse two, um, or actually I read verse three, didn't I? Verse two One person believes that he made anything and the other person believes that he can only eat vegetables. These are the two people, okay? The person in verse two has matured, the first part of verse two, who believes he can uh, eat anything he wants. That person has matured to the point that they understand through the gospel of Jesus Christ that certain dietary laws from the Old Testament have been fulfilled. They've been lifted now. Um, And uh, in the Old Testament, God deemed certain foods as unclean for his people. There were certain foods that God prohibited his people from eating because they were unclean and they did not reflect the the cleanness, the kosherness of God uh, in their worship. Things with hooved feet, certain hooved animals such as pigs, uh, bottom-dwelling fish like catfish or shrimp were all forbidden to God's people under the old covenant. And now... Under the new covenant, through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, we know that Christ has come to be our fulfillment of righteousness. So it is no longer the foods you eat or don't eat that makes you righteous. It is Jesus Christ alone who makes you righteous. All those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament and dietary laws were simply shadows being cast from the true substance of our righteousness, which was Jesus. 
And when he came, he fulfills all of these righteous requirements for us. Matthew 15, Acts chapter 10, tell us this truth that all foods are now permissible. So you're now free to eat pork and you're free to eat catfish and shrimp and you can wrap them all in bacon to the glory of God. Yes and amen. This stronger in faith understands grace and freedom that they can eat anything they want and it's an, it's an opportunity to worship God through it. But you see that second person in verse two only eats vegetables. This person is having a hard time understanding this tradition. And before we laugh and mock, you need to put yourselves in the position of this person in the first century. You've had 1,500 years of the old covenant. 1,500 years of both law and cultural tradition that when you got together for a meal, there was no gonna be no pork on your table. That was unclean, that would defile, that is, that is violating the law of God. Well, now all of a sudden you come together in a church with Gentiles, let alone other Jews who, who understand grace and freedom in the food areas now, but you don't quite, you're not there yet. You've had 1,500 years. Went to my grandparents' house on this holiday, went to my parents' house, and every time we went, there was never these items on the table. Now you throw a church potluck and everybody's bringing their bacon-wrapped everything, and I feel like this is causing me to stumble in my worship to God. Do you think that somebody is just gonna get over 1,500 years of tradition and law overnight? No, there's gonna be some convictions there. There's gonna be some stumbling blocks there because this is how I've always worshiped God. And I feel like I'm not able to worship God when I partake of these foods. Now, the truth is there is a truth here. There is a freedom. Christ is righteousness in this. You have freedom to eat, but not everybody feels that same freedom. And so Paul's writing to both these people here. So what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do when we hit this impasse? Is, is the vegan to throw stones at old pork chop over here for being too liberal? Is, is uh, old pork chop to look down on and make fun of said vegan for not knowing their Bible better? Are we to fight and cause splits over this? Are we gonna have two churches? We're gonna have First Baptist herbivore on one quarter of the street and First Baptist carnivore on the other street. Now we've got two churches. Are we really going to make this issue the primary issue that not only won't unify us, but is actually dividing us rather than the blood of Christ that has brought us together as one? Are we gonna, are we gonna make this the issue? Issues of, and again, we're not talking here about neutral areas. We're not talking about revealed commands of scripture, sexual immorality. We're not talking about denying Jesus. We're talking about food. Issues of personal opinion and conviction now. So what do we do? Verse three, read this earlier, read it again. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Meaning the one who understands the nature of grace and freedom is not to look down on or make light of the person who doesn't have the same freedom as you. And also the one whose conviction or one whose opinion is that they should continue to stay away from certain foods, they are not to cast condemning judgment on the one who wants to throw down some pulled pork to the glory of God and call them a flaming liberal for doing it. 
There is freedom on both sides. So Paul says, how about we get off each other's backs in these specific gray areas? Why? Because God has already accepted your brother and sister. Meaning, um, they are just as accepted and standing before God as you are because of the righteousness of Christ. That's what matters the most. And you see this in verse four. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Did you catch that right here? When it comes to the non-essential areas of conviction and preference and opinion, you and I are not the one the other person has to report to. God is. They are serving. He's called a servant. They are serving God by abstaining, just like you are serving God by engaging. You're both servants of God. And on the day of judgment, even the weakest believer in these areas that you know of will stand victorious, cleansed, and forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so because God accepts them, so should you. You see, if these given issues were revolving around explicitly revealed moral doctrinal commands of the Bible that are non-negotiable, never changing in time or culture, that somebody may be engaging in or rejecting that they shouldn't, then yes, we have permission to judge one another in accordance to God's word in order to help bring about restorative repentance and reconciliation in someone's life, according to Galatians 5, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. There is a time and a place for that, but over the explicitly commanded issues that we're disobeying. But these are not those issues. These are personal conscience, conviction. You see this more clearly in Paul's second example. He moves from holy food now to holy days. Verse five, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Now, meaning we're talking about the Sabbath here. Is the Sabbath, and man, we have so many rungs of opinion and belief and interpretation on this. Is the Sabbath that God set aside for man on Saturday in the Old Testament, should it still be Saturday day? Should it be Sunday? In the first century, Christians began to observe Sunday instead of Saturday as the Sabbath because that was in keeping with the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And then there's the question is, what does that mean to honor the Sabbath under the new covenant? I mean, I'm forbidden to work. If you go to Israel today, they are so strict on the Sabbath that Orthodox Jews, they have certain markers that are all around Jerusalem that you cannot walk past that marker on a Sabbath day because that would be considered a work and you're in violation of the Sabbath. Um, you have you go to certain hotels, and on the Sabbath, all the buttons are lit up in the elevator, like on Elf, because it would be a work to touch a button in order to go to the next floor. So you just got to ride every floor all the way up so you don't violate the law. Is that what we're talking about here? Do we have to view this one day or the other? There are others who understand now, which is interesting. On, on the idea of Sabbath here, there are others who understand according to Hebrews chapter four that Jesus has become our Sabbath rest under the new covenant. Of all the 10 commandments, there's only one commandment that's never repeated in the New Testament. It's the one on the Sabbath. 
Hebrews 4 says Jesus has fulfilled that for us. He's become our Sabbath. Colossians 2, Paul strictly forbids anybody from judging another person by trying to elevate one day now above the other. It doesn't mean that you can't keep the Sabbath. You can't keep the principle of rest. Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. It was given for you to rest and enjoy and worship unto the Lord. But is it binding? Others see this as free now because of Paul's commands under the new covenant. And, and, and so, so what's said here is somebody feels that, man, I need to abstain from working on the Sabbath. Another goes, no, I can engage. And both are viewing it as worship to God. And again, put yourself in the first century, 1,500 years, where it's shut down on Saturday. And now all of a sudden the church starts gathering on Sunday and they start, they're doing other things on Saturday. Is this okay? I can't go there. My conviction, my conscience even though apparently I've been freed in this, what do I do? Let me show you how and why um, we're to move forward here in engaging this. Because let me ask this question. Is it possible for two different people to serve God in non-moral, neutral areas of Scripture, gray areas in totally opposite ways, and yet both of them be serving God at the same time? According to Romans 14, absolutely you can How? Look at the end of verse five. Each one has to be fully convinced in his own mind. Meaning these non-moral, non-revealed areas, these gray areas of personal conscience, not biblical imperatives, we have to arrive at our own convictions. You're gonna have to do some homework. You're gonna have to search the mind of the spirit and what is right in this particular area for you in your worship of God. You're gonna have to be convinced of it just like I've gotta be convinced of it, even if we land at two different places on this. And you see this in verse six, the one who observes the day, who's gonna observe the Sabbath, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who's gonna eat, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains from those things abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Do you see the driving issue in this verse? It's not whether you eat or don't eat. It's not whether you choose to drink a beer or not drink a beer. It's not whether you choose to put your kids in public school or homeschool or private school. It's not whether you choose to hand out candy on Halloween or lock all your doors and stay in. It's not about those issues. It's that in any choice that we make in these non-explicitly commanded areas of scripture, that there is, and by the way, there is freedom of choice in those areas, Each person has to be fully convinced, not wavering in their decision. And the driving motivation of your decision has to be the glory of God. That's what matters here more than anything else is what you feel is going to exalt Jesus Christ the most in your life based upon your conviction. And you give thanks to God in those decisions that you make. Paul says this all throughout scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whether or not you do or don't, doesn't matter. Just so long as whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. Colossians chapter three, verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And he goes on to say, it is, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. This is not about people pleasing. It's about God pleasing and your own conviction. He's already pleased with you because of the work of Christ. 
Your worship of him now is going to be a conviction in these areas of how you're going to leverage it for his glory. And in verse 7, Paul substantiates all of this by this overarching unifying principle. He says, for none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's, meaning the entire spectrum of your Christian life from the cradle to the grave is not meant to be lived by trying to earn the applause of men or hold judgment over other men for areas that the scripture is not binding in, but rather that everything that you do on this earth from cradle to grave, both in deed and in heart motivation, which by the way, drives the deed, every single thing is to be governed by this one motivation. Does this thing that I do or don't do, does it glorify Jesus in my doing or my abstaining from it? And does it demonstrate the power of his gospel at work in my life? That's what we're trying to get at right here. Why? Because every aspect of our life is governed and owned by him. See this in verse nine. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. The ultimate purpose of Jesus Christ in coming into this world is to establish his redemptive authority over our lives. God already owns us once by the right of creation. And if you put your faith in Jesus, then God now owns you twice by the right of redemption. He has purchased you back through the blood of his son. So every aspect of our life, both in the revealed areas of scripture and the non-revealed areas of scripture, are meant to be lived under his authority, what will bring him the most glory. That's what they are aimed at being as we move forward as an act of worship in all that we do. My job is not to compare my life to yours. My job is to compare my life to Jesus. Your job is not to, is not to do the same either, but to compare your life to Jesus. And knowing that Jesus himself will serve as our ultimate judge when this life is through. And we see that in verses 10 through 12, when he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 45, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God both uh, in 2 Corinthians 5 and Hebrews 4, amongst other places, we are told that we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There are two major judgments in scripture. The great white throne judgment is the one in Revelation that is geared towards all those who have rejected Jesus as their savior. It'll be a horrific day. When those who have reject and rejected and rebelled against Jesus on this earth, who thought they were right in doing so, they will be held accountable. They will stand before the judgment seat of God, the great white throne judgment. All those who did not put their trust in the blood of Jesus will be cast off from God eternally into hell. But there's a second judgment we see in 2 Corinthians 5, Hebrews 4, that is the, the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ that's geared towards the believer. And it's not a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of reward. Today, when we'll all stand before Christ, we've already been made righteous in him, but we will stand bare before him. Every deed we've ever done, every motivation that we've ever had will be exposed 
in front of him. And in that moment, it's as if God will simply do this. And everything that was done for the flesh and for the applause of men will be just driven away. And everything that was done for Christ will remain. And we will be recompensed and rewarded based upon that. But even in that moment, we'll take whatever crowns we're given, we'll throw them at his feet because only he's worthy. And that's the judgment that's in mind here. That there is a day coming when we're going to, all of our motivations will be stripped bare. And, uh, and, and we will stand simply based upon, was this thing that I did or didn't do? Was it for the glory of God? And was it for the good of my fellow brother or sister? That's what matters ultimately. There's another section of this text we'll get to next time, but let me give you four takeaways that I think we need to start with in our understanding of Romans 14 for today, the church here today in our 21st century. Number one, may we stop picking fights with other blood-bought, believing brothers and sisters in the body of Christ over non-essential, non-revelatory, non-gospel hills that the Bible has not explicitly commanded us nor prohibited us, such as essential doctrine and morality. Um, Will this text preach today? Are we just dividing all over the places, the church, over really lesser issues? Masks and vaccines, are they important? Absolutely they're important. Do they require wisdom? Oh, they require wisdom. Should you come to a personal conviction about this? Absolutely you should. Should the church split over this issue? To have a vaccinated church, a non-vaccinated, a mask wearing, a non-masking? No, we should not split over this issue. Should we learn how to reason together and appeal towards wisdom and in love and in charity towards one another on these issues that are not the issues that Jesus went to the cross to purchase you out of death from? No, yes. So we, we need to use wisdom. We need to learn to live and let live. And we need to stop devouring one another over lesser issues. Listen to how Paul put it in Galatians 5, verses 13 and 15. For you are called to freedom, brothers, but do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for your flesh, meaning using your freedom to prove how right you are, but through love actually serve one another. What are the needs of your brother and sister that you can meet in this moment versus tear down? Serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's all what we saw last week. But if you bite and devour one another, oh, take care that you are not consumed by one another. We have got to stop biting and devouring one another over issues that don't ultimately matter. They're important, yes, they don't ultimately matter. Second, you do need to solidify your convictions in these gray areas. And we need to submit those convictions to the Lord. That's gonna require wisdom. That's gonna require prayer. We're gonna have to do our homework. We're gonna have to again, search the heart and mind of the spirit in each of these issues that do matter. How we vote, whether we should take this medicine or this medicine, whether we should engage in this party or this party, whatever it may be, we're gonna have to use a lot of wisdom. And here's the problem, church. Christians hate having to think. We love just somebody telling us rules. Do this, don't do this. Yes, thank you. We love just clear. It's like when you're driving down the road, it's like, 
Red light, green light, stop sign. We like those real clear, for at least for most of us, real clear. But then what do we do when there's a yield sign? Ah! What do we do when it's danger, curve ahead? What does that mean? 20 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour? Now, some of us have real clear opinions on which speed that should be, but we're confused. We don't like that. But here's the deal. There's a lot of gray areas, y'all. There's a lot of differences in this body. And we're gonna have to use wisdom and prayer in consideration of the needs of another. And one of the challenges, can we just be real in this whole text? We can't even agree on what's gray. And so we're gonna have to have a lot more pre-work to understand what the scriptures actually teach or don't teach on a said subject and where there is freedom. Clearly, even in this text, there's an example of a brother who understands his freedom biblically and one who's not quite there yet. So there is some understanding we need to have, but we need to develop our own convictions first. And then thirdly, once those convictions are established, we need to seek to do everything we can, not only to obey those convictions in our own life, but to grant charity for others in using a motivation that is for the glory of God and the good of another. That has to be what's driving everything. Jesus has got to be the all-satisfying joy and substance of our lives that drives every decision we make. Social media, stop letting social media tell you how to think. We've got to walk away from being influenced by the popular narratives of our day. It must be the word of God and the Holy Spirit that guides us. We can't just use, well, that's just what I did back in my day. We've got to be careful with cultural tradition. There may be rooted in some good things, but just simply to say that's how we did it back then and you youngsters don't do it this way now or vice versa, whatever it may be, we got to be careful in that, which means we're going to have to radically fight against self-seeking, worldly-influenced, sinful desires that seek to rob Christ of his rightful glory and the good and the love of our brothers and sisters. We got to seek the kingdom of God first in all that we do. And we need to be walking by the spirit in these decisions, not by the flesh. And then lastly, in these non-revealed areas, these gray areas, where we will differ from one another, let's simply relinquish the other whom we disagree with unto the Lord for his ultimate judgment over what's driving the motivations of that individual in their worship. We gotta entrust one another to him we got to believe the best that God is dealing with that, that said person who's doing something differently than I would do it has really thought through this and is using this as unto worship of God. And we can, let's reason together, y'all. Let's come to the table and have some conversations, but let's not cancel one another. And let's not split church over. Let's pursue what has purchased us above everything else, which is the blood of Christ, amen? Now, in doing this, in doing this, when we learn to practice this way, Jesus gets exalted, his church becomes unified, and the gospel advances. Now, how does this, how does this unity practically play itself out day to day? Which one of us and our differences are gonna have to make the first move of love towards the other? I'm glad you asked. You're gonna have to come back next time because that's the back half of Romans 14, y'all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you that in your divine providence, you put this text here because you knew the issues that the church was gonna face isn't just from the hostile persecution of, a, of the world around us, 
You knew it's not just gonna come from battling doctrinal issues of explicit truth in the scripture that we must hold to even in a day of compromise. And certain issues are worth splitting over. But you know, there's many more issues that just aren't. And unfortunately, God, these are the issues that tend to divide us more than anything. God, would you give us wisdom as we even process through this message, whether in our gospel communities or with our families at home, our roommates, God, give us wisdom to see to see these decisions as you see them, as opportunities of worship of you and opportunities to really lay down our preferences so that we can love one another and serve one another the way that you have loved and served us. And so we submit all this to you for your glory and our good in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 1115, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.